This evening's Bible reading is taken from Matthew chapter 27, verse 27 to 56. You can also find this on the Pew Bibles on page 100, no, 1042. So Matthew chapter 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus in the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it up in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and he'll believe, and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sebachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those who were standing heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine and vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn into two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs. And after Jesus' Jesus's resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those who were with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary of the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of Zebedee's son. Now, friends, uh, uh, keep your Bibles open at uh, Matthew 27. Let me extend my warm welcome to those of your uh, friends and family, of those getting baptised, or those who were baptised. Warm welcome. Uh, Keep your Bibles to Matthew 27. We'll work through this passage, um, and it's appropriate as we think and prepare for Easter. Uh, But let's uh, join together in prayer once more, asking that God might help us. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, as we reflect on the story of the first Easter, of what you did in your son Jesus, we pray that tonight you might help us all to feel the weight of your love for us, how costly it was. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, have you ever felt or thought about how strange it is and how unusual it is that God is the God of love, that God would love at all? Now, I suspect that for many of us, we would never have thought about God any other way. Of course, God is the God of love. Of course, God would love us. Why wouldn't he? How can he not love us? But let's think about that for a moment. Why would God, the king of the entire universe, the one who made everything, the one who is self-sufficient, the one who does not need us at all, be in any way concerned for little me and little you? Have you thought about it that way? I mean, why would God care about us at all? I mean, he certainly does not need to. Out of the 7 billion people there are around the world today, I don't expect our premier to be concerned for me. I wouldn't expect him to know my name. I wouldn't expect our PM to be concerned for me. I don't expect him to know my name. But yet we expect this from God. More than that, we expect that God should love us. But do you see how strange that is? How strange that thought is to think that God is the God of love. In fact, that's how the ancient world saw it. They saw it as strange, even ridiculous, that anyone would speak of God as the God of love. You see, the pagan gods in the ancient world, they were not there to love their people. They were there so that their people served them. They make demands on their people. And so when Christians spoke of the God of the Bible, of the God of love, the pagan world looked upon the Christian God and saw this was a defect in God's character. It's strange that God would love at all. But you see, this is the God we believe. This is the God of the Bible, the only God there is. This is the God that both Lindy and Emily have come to know deeply, personally and joyfully. And hopefully you will too, if you have not yet. But how is it possible at all that any one of us know that God loves us? How can we be absolutely certain that God loves me and that God loves you? Remember, we are so small, so minor, so little. How can we be so sure? Well, you see, it boils down to this very passage we're looking at tonight. In fact, you'll never understand the extent of God's love until you understand this passage. You'll never understand the heart of God for you until you understand this passage. And tonight we see how much God does indeed love us. And so what we see in this story, it's all about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And when Jesus walked this earth, what he said, what he did, what he taught, what he showed, what he revealed, they all revealed the extent of God's love for us. They reflect the heart of God towards us. And so through God's own Son, we see God's own love. Through God's own Son, we see God's own love. And what we see here in this passage 
is a love that is enough that Jesus would be willing to be mocked and humiliated as king, even though he is in fact the king. You see, when we look at this passage, we see here this savagely humiliating thing that these soldiers were doing. The soldiers were not just being soldiers, but they were brutal here. A bunch of grown-up schoolyard bullies. They put on a purple robe around Jesus, the colour of royalty. They made this, made this crown of thorns and pierced his head with it. They gave him this reed to make it look like he's ruling with this scepter. And of course, they bowed down in homage towards him. And of course, they did that out of mockery and out of contempt. I mean, they're thinking, what type of king is this? You claim to be king. Look at you. This is pathetic. And so have a look with me, verses 28 and 29. They stripped him and put on a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews! But of course they were like a bunch of ruthless bullies, these soldiers. They take this reed, they beat him over the head again and again, they spit on him, which if you think about it, it's just absolutely humiliating. Now sometimes when we have chats and conversations with people after church and we're close enough, I don't really like it when you know, people spray spit over me and I do the same. I know it's an accident, I understand, I don't like it. But you see here... The, the, the group of the mob of soldiers spitting on Jesus intentionally. This is humiliating. So look, verse 31, uh, 30 and 31. They spit on him. They took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the rope and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. You see, they're thinking, what type of king is this? How weak, how pathetic, no dignity at all treating him like dirt. But of course what we really see here is that Jesus loves enough that he was willing to be mocked as king. He took it all, he bore it all, even though he really is indeed the king. But do you think Jesus could have done something here with the soldiers? As the king of the universe, do you think Jesus could have done something? Do you think Jesus could have stopped the mockery in that instant? display his glory, transfigure like on the mountain, right there in front of them all in his blazing glory to show them that he is in fact indeed the king of the universe. I mean, do you think Jesus could have done that? Could you, could you see that Jesus could have revealed to them that he is the king who will stand in judgment over them on the last day? But of course, Jesus didn't. I mean, he could have called down 12 legions of angels. What's a bunch of bullies? Uh, what can they do against a, a, an army of angels? But you see, it was out of great love. Jesus loves enough that he was willing to be mocked as king, even though he is indeed the king. Because what type of king is Jesus? Well, we see through the Gospel of Matthew, he's not the king that lords it over his people, but a king who would give up his life for his people and that's what we now see in this next bit of the story, the greater extent of his love. You see, now we see he loves enough to not even save himself. He had the power to save himself. A click of a finger and they'll all be gone. He had the power to do something, but he loves enough to not even save himself because he's there to save others. 
You see, it appears now that there's no way Jesus could save himself. After all the floggings and beatings, you just have to imagine his back would have been lacerated, blood everywhere, flesh ripped off with each whipping, beaten and bruised from all the bashing and punching. I mean, you can just imagine it would have been a horrendous mess. And so you can understand why by this stage, as he was heading towards Mount Golgotha, he could not even muster up the strength to carry the crossbeam of the cross to the place of crucifixion. At this point, he is just utterly powerless, weak and pathetic, so fatigued by all that was happening, broken that they had to force Simon to help carry the cross. I mean, he can't even carry his own cross, let alone save himself. But yet that was the type of mockery that continued at his crucifixion. And that happened at the cross. What we see here, a whole list of things was really just a fulfillment of Psalm 22. The wine, the piercing, the dividing of clothes, all fulfillment of prophecy. But what type of saviour was this? He can't even save himself. And to add salt to the wounds, they plastered this big sign above his head. And what do we read? Verse 37. Above his head, they placed a written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now, I'm sure if you were there standing at the foot of the cross, you'll be thinking like everyone else there. I mean, there's not much of a king. What type of loser is this? Let alone a saviour. How utterly weak and pathetic. But what makes this even worse was the nature of the crucifixion, which we may not be aware of. You see, it was not for just punishment, but it was for total humiliation. The crucifixion was not, to, not just to inflict pain, but it was to humiliate. The crucified criminals, they were left in the most undignified way possible. Now, what some of us might not have realised was that unlike in that, you know, the Mel Gibson movie, The Passion of the Christ, many of us perhaps have seen that, that was a, a good attempt at trying to be accurate at portraying the horrific brutality and the gruesome torture and floggings of the crucifixion. But what Mel Gibson understandably did not do, understandably so, to preserve some modesty, was that the Jesus in the movie was crucified with loincloths around his waist. Now, historically, that did not happen in the ancient world. Those crucified were crucified naked. Imagine that. The Lord Jesus was crucified naked. Whatever dignity that was left was stripped away, hanging naked on a cross high up on Mount Golgotha for all to see. Not just pain, but shame. You see, the crucifixion was such an embarrassment that even early Christians found it difficult and embarrassing to talk about their saviour as the one who was crucified. In the writings of this guy, an early Christian apologist, Felix, he writes of how the cross was seen as madness, as folly, as scandalous, as sick delusions, as senseless and crazy superstition. I mean, he was a Christian, but he found it difficult to defend the fact that the Son of God died a criminal's death on the tree of shame. And so you can understand the mockery and the taunting that was happening as people walked past. I mean, they're thinking, this is pathetic. This is the king of the Jews, the king of Israel, the saviour. 
How powerless. He can't even save himself. And that's what we read, verse 39 to 44. Have a look with me. Follow with me in your Bibles. Those who passed by hurled insults. Now, it's interesting here that the word insults is the word blasphemies, which tells us that the author, Matthew, understood their insults as blasphemy. And so they passed by, hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. You see, though they were mocking Jesus, they were really just saying what any normal, ordinary person watching that would say. In the ancient world, the gods of the Greeks and the Romans, they were immortal. And now looking at this, what type of god is this? Their gods had nothing in common with such a shameful cross. In fact, the Roman poet Ovid, this guy, he rewrote the story of Julius Caesar's assassination. You see, after Julius Caesar was assassinated, he was deified by the Roman Empire as a god. And so he had to rewrite the story so that it would not be seen that Caesar was killed in such an offensive way. Now, if you know your history, we know that Julius Caesar was killed by a group of Roman senators who stabbed him to death. But Ovid, in the retelling of the story, he says that the goddess Vesta carried Caesar off to the heavenly halls of Jupiter just before his murder. And so the assassin's weapon only stabbed his phantom. You see, that's what they made up about Julius Caesar. And so if they thought that that's what happened, surely Jesus can do something better. And so another philosopher, Celsus, he wrote this about Jesus. If he was really so great, he ought, in order to display his divinity, to have disappeared suddenly from the cross. But of course, in our account, in the gospel account, there's no denying that Jesus was crucified. There's no hiding away that it was shameful and utterly humiliating. But do you see, that's the point. Jesus loves enough to be humiliated to that extent, to be shamed to that extent. Jesus loves enough to not save himself because he's there to save others. Jesus loves enough to not save himself because he's there to save others. You see, it wasn't the nails that kept Jesus from coming down. Do you think five inch of iron could have restricted him from coming down? It wasn't the soldiers who kept Jesus from coming down. It was, in fact, love that kept him on the cross. Love for the very priests who sent him there. Love for the very soldiers who nailed him there. Love for the very criminals who were mocking him there. You see, if Jesus saved himself, then there's no way he could save others. But Jesus did not save himself precisely so that he could save others. Others, like we witness today, 
like Emily and Lindy. And that's why John Stott, he, he, he put it this way. Who delivered Jesus, who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. As we face the cross then, we can say to ourselves both, I did it, my sin sent him there, and he did it, his love took him there. You see, God allowed what he hates to achieve what he loves. And so eternal love eventually became bleeding flesh. This is the God of love. This is the God who bleeds, who loves enough to not save himself because he's there to save others. But yet that's not yet the full extent of the love of God. We see it extended more in this last bit. Jesus loves enough to even be God-forsaken, that somehow within this perfect trinity, he would experience a cosmic, never experienced, never to be repeated again disruption, something that perhaps we can never fully fathom what happened between God the Father and God the Son. But somehow God the Son bore the full wrath of God the Father on our behalf for humanity's sin. God the Son experienced God forsakenness on our behalf. And why? So that we will never be God forsaken. Have a look with me, verses 45 to 46. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, that's from 12 noon to 3 p.m., darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabbathani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, there on the cross, Jesus faced a hell of a separation from God. This was the abomination that causes desolation. There is no event in all of human history that displays greater pain and suffering than this. And then beyond all human comprehension, what do we see? God the Son dies. He dies, but he's in complete control. Look at verse 50. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Well, now we know that Jesus died. We all know that because of Easter. But we must remember we can never domesticate it. Just think about it for a moment. God the Son dying. God the life giver dying. That is earth shattering. How is it at all possible that God the Son would die? Hard to imagine. But here's an attempt to express the inexpressible. An early Christian father, in his sermon, he said this. He who hung the earth in its place hangs there. He who fixed the heavens is fixed there. He who made all things fast is made fast upon the tree. The master has been insulted. God has been murdered. The king of Israel has been slain by an Israelitish hand. Oh, strange murder, strange crime. The master has been treated in an unseemly fashion, his body naked and not even deemed worthy of a covering that his nakedness might not be seen. Therefore the light of heaven turned away and the day darkened that it might hide him who was stripped upon the cross. 
Do you feel the weight of what we're seeing at the crucifixion of Jesus? What we see here is that Jesus loves enough to even be God-forsaken so that we will never be God-forsaken. And by the end of this story, who gets it? Who understands the significance of it? After all the earthquakes, the rock splitting, the tombs opening, he was a Gentile centurion, perhaps the leader of the death squad who was responsible for killing Jesus. He was someone who would have witnessed dozens of crucifixions before, but yet he saw this one. And what happened? Verse 54, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. And so here we see in this passage the extent of the love of God for us. Jesus loves enough that he would even be willing to be God forsaken. For whom? For even this Gentile soldier responsible for his crucifixion so that he might never be God forsaken. I mean, Jesus, in this, in this story, he cried out those hard, chilling and terrifying words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he cried out those words so that we will never have to. And so it is really in God's providence that we have this passage to reflect on tonight as we witness the baptisms tonight. You see, you will never understand the extent of God's love for you until you understand this passage. And you will never understand the heart of God for you until you understand this passage. You see, there is no love in the whole universe that is as personal, as intimate, as tender, as deep, as lasting as the love of God seen at the cross of Christ. There is no love so powerful that it would even give you eternal life. And there is no love so amazing that God would even bleed to show it. You see, this should break our hearts with joy and also with hope that God would break his heart, his heart for us. And that is really what Emily and Lindy have expressed tonight, that they not only understand his love, they believe it, they experienced it. Jesus loves enough to be mocked as king. He copped it all, though he is king. Jesus loves enough to not save himself. He bears it all because he's there to save others. And Jesus loves enough to be God-forsaken so that we will never be God-forsaken. Lindy and Emily understood that. But what about the rest of you tonight? What about you? They will never be, Emily and Lindy, will never be God-forsaken because of Jesus. But what about you? See, as a pastor, I've got no greater fear than if any one of you do not understand this. If the cry of Jesus was not in your place, what that will mean is that one day you yourself will cry those terrifying, heart-chilling words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he will, forever. But come to know what Emily and Lindy did and expressed and shared today. 
to know the love of God for you as shown in the cross of Christ, then you don't miss out on the greatest love of all. It wouldn't be wonderful where we do have baptisms every week as people come to know the love of God. That's as a pastor. But I'm also a parent. And likewise, I've got no greater fear than if any of my kids do not understand this. And so quite regularly in our family, either on our daddy dates, which happen most weeks where I take one kid at a time out and they have sugar and milkshake and all that just before dinner, just to you know, help them behave a bit, or sometimes in the car all together. But the last time I shared with them about this was just this morning. I wanted to make sure that they understood this, the love of God for them so that they won't miss out. And so this morning I asked them in my study, you know that Baba loves you, right? Baba is just Chinese for daddy. You know that Baba loves you, right? A lot. And they said, yes. You do know that Baba would lay down his life for each one of you without question. And they said, yes. These are questions that we would repeat often, and so they know the answer. I hope they believe it. And then I would ask, and then I did ask, but do you know who loves you more? And they would answer, they did answer this morning, God does. And I asked, how? Why? Because he gave us his son. They said this, and that is right. God loves you more. God would bleed for you. In fact, God bled for you. And because of Jesus, God will never forsake you. It should break our hearts with joy that God will break his heart for us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, how can we ever fathom the glory and the cost of your love, so wonderful, so glorious, and so amazing? But praise be to Jesus Christ, our King and Saviour, who cried out those words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we will never have to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.